Professor for Satoshi's White Paper. There can be few publications as short of length in history to have caused such a large revolution. Einstein's Annus Mirabilis papers were four medium-length academic papers. On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres by Nicholas Copernicus was 405 pages long. Even Tom Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, was 47 pages long. But Satoshi's white paper is only nine pages long. Written in clear and understandable prose and needing only minimal mathematical proof, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, is a piece of literature that should be read by all. The mining of the first block, the block heard around the world, was based on this white paper. And it is this white paper that tells us, the reader, the ordinary person, exactly how this new system would work, how block mining works, and how, once the system gets going, it is almost impossible to stop. The white paper uses no rhetorical flourishes or metaphors to describe quite how monumental what the nature of the system contained in this white paper would result in. The white paper simply says how the Bitcoin system will work and then gives a few use cases. In this episode, I will be reading the white paper with some of my own thoughts interspersed between the sections. Reading the white paper back again after a couple of years has left me with some very clear thoughts and new thoughts on this paper. So I want to take everybody back to how Satoshi thought of his invention and what he emphasises, or perhaps she, and highlights in the white paper as being important. The white paper is not the only source of Satoshi Nakamoto, but it is the primary one. There are other sources of Satoshi's work and writings, such as internet forums, but this white paper was his most unified effort. The writing of the white paper must have taken some time. It is so short and so concise that one must think to get something that brief, it must have taken quite some time. It is a planned piece of writing describing in plain terms how the system is best used and it took only nine pages to change the world. The paper focuses on the Bitcoin system, not on the results. It looks at not only how Bitcoin will be used and protected in the first 10 years of its introduction, but it also takes into account the next 50 years. The most interesting facet of the white paper is that we can read from the paper that Satoshi was not only trying to solve a problem with the banking system, but to introduce an electronic cash system to be native to the internet, to solve what he perceived as a problem of what was missing from the internet circa 2008. The first word of the introduction of the white paper reveals the true extent of Satoshi's dream. It is not concerned with taking down banks or making people rich. The first word is not an overly common word used to describe the Bitcoin system and what it tries to solve. The first word of the white paper proper is commerce, and that's something to keep in mind as we read through. So we're going to read the paper in full, and then I'm going to add a little commentary and textual analysis. So let's get started. Quote, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Satoshi Nakamoto, Satoshi N at gmx.com, www.bitcoin.org. Abstract. A purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. 
we propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer -peer network. The network timestamp transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof-of-work. The longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. As long as a majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they'll generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. The network itself requires minimal structure. Messages are broadcast on a best effort basis and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof-of-work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. Close quotes. So, right from the abstract, we see Satoshi describe Bitcoin as peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. It is a form of electronic cash, Satoshi claims, enabling money to go to person to person without needing to go through a financial institution. How Satoshi intended to implement this is the interesting thing. He proposes partly the use of digital signatures, but the real solution is this peer-to-peer -peer network to solve the double spend problem so that no one entity can increase or misrepresent these spendings and disrupt the network. Timestamps are enacted to enable an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work in order to keep the system secure from attackers. Hash functions are simply functions to map data onto a system. A quote-unquote hash-based proof-of-work is a remarkably simple way to describe inventing the blockchain. This proof of work, the cause of so much electricity use we keep hearing about, was the way Satoshi chose to fundamentally mean that the chain would keep on going. Using all this electricity and CPU power is the proof of work and it ensures a much harder time for any attackers. Through recording work done and broadcasting to all nodes, the longest chain of these hash-based proof-of-works makes it a secure system. Satoshi then goes on to say that this system will work perfectly as long as the majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that cooperate. The nodes that cooperate will be able to join forces and outpace any attackers. What Satoshi doesn't say in this abstract is that the network will also benefit those who join the system by granting them tokens, or bitcoins, for the proof of work they do if they work for the network and lend it CPU power. This electronic cash will therefore benefit cooperative nodes and, over history, benefit the nodes that do cooperate. The system has an inbuilt approach to attackers. It incentivizes you to think that if you can't beat the system, you will have to join it. You can earn more from mining than you can ever get from attacking the system. With the system written to perpetually follow the longest proof of chain work as evidence of transactions, there is little need for anybody to perform system maintenance as nodes can come and go at will. There is a bundle of stuff in only one paragraph, but the most interesting part of the abstract for me is Satoshi's description of Bitcoin as electronic cash, mostly because this abstract then directly goes into the introduction proper, where Satoshi follows up on the proposal of Bitcoin as electronic cash. Quote 1. Introduction Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. Completely non-reversible transactions are not really possible, 
since financial institutions cannot avoid mediating disputes. The cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility for small causal transactions. And there is a broader cost in the loss of ability to make non-reversible payments for non-reversible services. With the possibility of reversal, the need for trust spreads. Merchants must be wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they otherwise would need. A certain percentage of fraud is accepted as unavoidable. These costs and payment uncertainties can be avoided in person by using physical currency, but no mechanism exists to make payments over a communication channel without a trusted third party. What is needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof of work instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Transactions that are computationally impractical to reverse would protect sellers from fraud and routine escrow mechanisms could easily be implemented to protect buyers. In this paper, we propose a solution to the double spend problem using a peer-to-peer -peer distributed timestamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. The system is secure as long as honest nodes collectively control more CPU power than any cooperating group of attacker nodes. Close quotes. Satoshi begins his groundbreaking paper on something a little more abstract than you might expect. A justification for his project, not an explanation. But I'll repeat the first sentence. Quote, Commerce on the internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. Close quotes. He begins with the idea of fixing commerce on the internet with a digitally native internet currency, rather than his system being used as a store of value or bank buster technology. This is interesting. I do remember back in 2006 or 2007, when the internet was even less monetized, it was nearly impossible without a bank to get money onto the internet. And by onto the internet, I mean PayPal or something of the like. There was no digitally native internet currency. And I do remember thinking back in 2006 and 2007 that this was a genuine problem. Especially as I, as somebody who didn't have a bank card yet, could not get money onto the internet. Over the next couple of years, I got a bank card and was able to access money on the internet. And the problem became less severe. But the problem did not go away. For e-commerce especially, the internet was scaling faster than an institutional trust-based model could. In effect, Satoshi could see a problem I had also encountered. But Satoshi was able to solve it. I could use the internet in around 2007 and browse, but I could not buy or spend anything as I did not have a debit card to get money from a bank account into a PayPal account or even to be able to pay for products on the internet. I had no online banking to send a bank transfer, so I was stuck. Over the course of the next decade, online banking became far more prevalent, and smartphones helped online banking become almost intuitive. But Satoshi's main reason for wanting to create an internet cash still remained. Digital fiat money, quote, still suffers from the inherent weakness of the trust-based model." This sentence is therefore a giveaway reason for the Bitcoin invention. To give quote, an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust. So now we have the second of Satoshi's reasons or justifications for his product. The first was wanting to create a digitally native internet currency, and the second is to move this system away from a system of trust 
and into a system of proof of work. Sometimes forgotten amongst the hype of the value of Bitcoin is that Satoshi actually wanted to solve a problem. There was of course no internet cash, but he wanted to make this electronic payment system based around cryptographic proof instead of trust. The brevity of Satoshi's statement, like much else in the white paper, could be passed over as just an offhand comment, but its profound implications should not be passed over. In a sentence, Satoshi decides to shift the entire monetary basis of the world. Elements of proof of work were found in gold or silver mining. And if you do physically mine gold or silver, real genuine back-breaking work, you might come away with gold bars. Proof of work. Yet this system is imperfect, as I'm sure millennia of gold prospectors would tell you. Instead of the proof of work being based on blood, sweat and tears, Satoshi decides to use cryptography. Based on cryptographic proof of work rather than trust, which is a polite way of saying the trust of liars and central bankers, the systematic use of CPU power was now all the work you would need to do in this digital world. It was a radical proposal. It based money on cryptographic proof, not the trust of banks or the reliability of mining rocks from underground. Satoshi then goes on to talk about a problem I was not too familiar with back in 2009, but one I am more aware of now, having sold a few things here or there on eBay and the like. Arguably not the biggest problem in the world for me, but Bitcoin means it is now impossible to have the problem of chargebacks. Having sold a few things here or there, I am aware that if you use PayPal and either broader banking services, there is a real possibility of reverse chargeback. It's hardly the biggest bugbear, but it means money cannot be trusted to be your money. It is custodial of the institution in which you place your trust, from the local bank to the bank of international settlements, it's all the same. Now, I'm imagining that Satoshi was less concerned about the odd PayPal chargeback here or there that I've had to deal with, and more interested in the reserve ability and possibility of halting payments, meaning that everybody from ordinary people to sovereign states are not really sovereign if they cannot rely on their money being their money and being seized by these quote-unquote trusted institutions. You might argue it's good North Korea or Gaddafi can have their money blocked, but it also means that shady financial institutions have far more control over the money supply than they should. What originally looks like a small part of the system then has radical implications. If you chose the digital mint option for electronic cash, you might want to program in some form of reversibility. You know, to be used in quote-unquote emergencies or to stop crime. Yet as we all know, these charges are highly debatable and wallowing in political expediencies rather than a fair system for all. The implementation of non-reversibility means that coins are digitally secured and impossible to claw back, save for masses of police time and effort along with the cooperation of the criminal. Something that may still be possible, but becomes a lot, lot more difficult. In effect, this means that Satoshi decided to create Bitcoin as property and sovereign. The implications for this are legion. From the individual now becoming sovereign, to reclaiming the concept of the nation-state as money is now so secure that states are far more comfortable following their own path away from the excesses of globalisation and the limitations of the Yankee dollar. Satoshi then goes on to casually describe the blockchain he will create to make this system. Quote, In this paper, we propose a solution to the double-spending problem using a peer-to-peer -peer distributed time-stamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. Close quotes. What sounds like a simple solution by Satoshi is therefore proposed. 
Satoshi needs a solution to the double spending problem. He therefore opts to use a distributed timestamp server. He makes it sound as simple as that. Quote, two transactions. We define an electronic coin as a chain of digital signatures. Each owner transfers the coin to the next by digitally signing a hash of the previous transaction and the public key of the next owner and adding these to the end of the coin. A payee can verify the signatures to verify the chain of ownership. The problem, of course, is that the payee can't verify that one of the owners did not double spend the coin. A common solution is to introduce a trusted central authority, or mint, that checks every transaction for double spending. After each transaction, the coin must be returned to the mint to issue a new coin, and only coins issued directly from the mint are trusted not to be double spent. The problem with this solution is that the fate of the entire money system depends on the company running the mint, with every transaction having to go through them, just like a bank. We need a way for the payee to know that the previous owners did not sign any earlier transactions. For our purposes, the earliest transaction is the one that counts, so we don't care about later attempts to double spend. The only way to confirm the absence of a transaction is to be aware of all transactions. In the Mint-based model, the Mint was aware of all transactions and decided which arrived first. To accomplish this without a trusted party, transactions must be publicly announced and we need a system for participants to agree on a single history of the order in which they were received. The payee needs proof that at the time of each transaction, the majority of nodes agreed it was the first received." Close quotes. So here we have the white paper getting into the nitty-gritty. Satoshi describes, in plain, simple English, how an electronic coin works with a chain of digital signatures. Via way of signing a hash of the previous transaction, a series of blocks are used to keep a chain of ownership over the coins. With way of avoiding a mint, as Satoshi calls it, each transaction can, in a series of blocks, check the previous transaction. It checks against the double spend problem, a problem so serious throughout history that replicating or counterfeiting money has long been seen as one of the most serious crimes against the state. Now, of course, they just call it quantitative easing. As Satoshi says, the problem with mints is that it makes the money system rely on the quality of the mint. Every transaction, if using a digital mint, would have to go through it. It might have been possible to create a decentralized digital mint that could provide some overall control and yet not be co-opted. Yet the solution Satoshi found to avoid any semblance of a mint was perfect. The option of a digital mint would have essentially made Bitcoin nothing more than a central bank digital currency. The blockchain made the system more elegant and at the same time more simple. By publicly announcing all transactions and then relying on a hive mind of CPU power to confirm transactions, Satoshi found the perfect solution. Satoshi may have regretted not putting more encryption on some elements of these broadcasts to anonymize the open blockchain and give an extra layer of security, but it's hardly the greatest oversight. Other coins have stepped up to fill this small niche. Quote, three, timestamp server. The solution we propose begins with a timestamp server. A timestamp server works by taking a hash of a block of items to be timestamped and widely publishing the hash, such as in a newspaper or Usenet post. The timestamp proves that the data must have existed at the time, obviously, in order to get into the hash. Each timestamp includes the previous timestamp in its hash, forming a chain, 
with each additional timestamp reinforcing the ones before it. Close quotes. In only a few sentences, Satoshi here describes the system of how a timestamp server to record information will be done. This data added together becomes a hash, which becomes stored data and stored onto the blockchain. These timestamps prove that the transaction must have taken place in order to get the original hash in the first place. The layering of these hashes upon each other forms a chain of hashes. Therefore we get a chain of blocks all linking together to get the correct transaction data. Quote 4. Proof of work. To implement a distributed timestamp server on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, we will need to use a proof-of-work system similar to Adam Back's Hashcash, rather than newspaper or Usenet posts. The proof-of-work involves scanning for a value that when hashed, such as with SHA256, the hash begins with a number of zero bits. The average work required is exponential in the number of zero bits required and can be verified by executing a single hash. For our timestamp server, we implement the proof of work by incrementing a nonce in the block until a value is found that gives the block's hash the required zero bits. Once the CPU effort has been expended to make it satisfy the proof of work, the block cannot be changed without redoing the work. As later blocks are changed after it, the work to change the block would include redoing all the blocks after it. The proof of work also solved the problem of determining representation in majority decision making. If the majority were based on one IP address, one vote, it could be subverted by anyone able to allocate many IPs. Proof-of-work is essentially one CPU, one vote. The majority decision is represented by the longest chain, which has the greatest proof-of-work effort invested in it. If a majority of CPU power is controlled by honest nodes, the honest chain will grow the fastest and outpace any competing chains. To modify a past block, an attacker would have to redo the proof-of-work of the block and all blocks after it and then catch up with and suppress the work of the honest nodes. We will show later that the probability of a slower attacker catching up diminishes exponentially as subsequent blocks are added. To compensate for increasing hardware speed and varying interest in running nodes over time, the proof-of-work difficulty is determined by a moving average targeting an average number of blocks per hour. If they're generated too fast, the difficulty increases." Satoshi here describes the proof-of-work system designed to implement the decentrally distributed timestamp server. The section describes the basis for why proof-of-work is better than the unnamed alternative, which is proof-of-stake. Proof-of-work means that for the system to work, work has to be put into the system. Satoshi himself states that the blockchain works by using CPU power rather than say IP addresses to make it more secure. It makes sense for a digital cache to need digital work, namely CPU power, which in turn is powered by electricity. In a digital automated age, work was unlikely to have been human powered. Satoshi's blockchain has automated the very work it needs to get currency. The only work humans now need to do is to produce more CPU power and more electricity. It is a rather major leap in technology to have so much powered simply by automation. The more the proof-of-work chains of mined blocks are linked one after the other, it becomes harder and harder to change these old records. The old blocks become an anchor on the system, keeping it together and holding it down against any chance of attackers disrupting the system. To modify a past block, you would have to redo all the proof of work block after block. 
This system of proof of work secures much of the system against getting attacked or undermined by literally anybody. It becomes too difficult for any competing system or attackers to do anything against the system. We will get onto the incentives section in a moment, but it's worth remembering right now that the incentives are that the proof of work system is so good at stopping attackers that if you have a heavy stack of CPU capacity, you will always gain far more from cooperating with the system, e.g. turning your CPU capacity to mining, rather than trying to use the CPU capacity to attack the system and break it. Quote 5. Network The steps to run the network are as follows. 1. New transactions are broadcast to all nodes. 2. Each node collects new transactions in a block. 3. Each node works on finding a difficult proof of work for its block. 4. When a node finds a proof of work, it broadcasts the block to all nodes. 5. Nodes accept the block only if all transactions in it are valid and not already spent. 6. Nodes express their acceptance of the block by working on creating the next block in the chain, using the hash of the accepted block as the previous hash. Nodes always consider the longest chain to be the correct one, and will keep working on extending it. If two nodes broadcast different versions of the next block simultaneously, some nodes may receive one or the other first. In that case, they will work on the first one they received, but save the other branch in case it becomes longer. The tie will be broken when the next proof of work is found and one branch becomes longer. The nodes that were working on the other branch will then switch to the longer one. New transaction broadcasts do not necessarily need to reach all nodes. As long as they reach many nodes, they will get into a block before long. Block broadcasts are also tolerant of dropped messages. If a node does not receive a block, it will request it when it receives the next block and realises it misses one. A blockchain is nothing without a network. The Bitcoin blockchain is merely a network of automated nodes. It is these nodes that the system needs to keep working. Blockchains are these connected automated nodes connected through the internet. Running money through computer nodes might sound new, but it's based on much older strategies of decentralized command. Nodal command is the decentralized network archetype. Nodal command is found in all walks of life, and it is vital for having effective decentralized leadership. Each node must be able to react within programmatic limits to new information and to keep the system running. If we were to use an analogy, the famed Prussian army used decentralized leadership by training its officers far better than any other army, allowing for their highly trained and disciplined generals much more battlefield flexibility than any other European army, which often used rigid command and control style leaderships. The Prussian army almost worked as a nodal system of command with generals acting much more independently than, say, their French counterparts. The Prussian army often took the initiative and greatly outcompeted the manoeuvrability and aggressive command of the French. Well, computer nodes work on a similar model. The internet is merely the connection of these two nodes, which have programmatic limits, but certain reflexivity. This nodal command at the heart of Bitcoin means it doesn't need centralizing forces to run commands, operations, and have limited flexibility. It is all automated. So what are these nodes? Nodes in this context are just computer programs running the Bitcoin system autonomously. Anybody with a CPU can run a node. One CPU, one vote. These nodes are not AI. They cannot learn and reflect, but they can accept mistakes in the system within programmatic limits 
such as other nodes dropping out. As Satoshi says, quote, If a node does not receive a block, it will request it when it receives the next block and realises it misses one. Close quotes. There is simplicity in this nodal command structure. One that democratises money, keeps it secure, and can react to dropouts and new users. Quote, 6. Incentive. By convention, the first transaction in a block is a special transaction that starts a new coin owned by the creator of the block. This adds an incentive for nodes to support the network and provides a way to initially distribute coins into circulation, since there is no central authority to issue them. The steady addition of a constant amount of new coins is analogous to gold miners expending resources to add gold to circulation. In our case, it is CPU time and electricity that is expended. The incentive can also be funded with transaction fees. If the output value of a transaction is less than its input value, the difference is a transaction fee that is added to the incentive value of the block containing the transaction. Once a predetermined number of coins have entered circulation, the incentive can transition entirely to transaction fees and be completely inflation free. The incentive may help encourage nodes to stay honest. If a greedy attacker is able to assemble more CPU power than all the honest nodes, he would have to choose between using it to defraud people by stealing back his payments or using it to generate new coins. He ought to find it more profitable to play by the rules, such rules that favour him with more new coins than anyone else combined, than to undermine the system and the validity of his own wealth. Close quotes. In this chapter, Satoshi lays out the game theoretics as to why people might use the system. It will be obvious to all in future why today people might want to adopt the Bitcoin system. But to us now, and to those at the time of release, it was this chapter that might have provided the initial thrust. After the first block is mined, starting the system, additional nodes are added to support the network. And it is this system of increasing networkization that results in the system beginning to gain a foothold. There is a constant incentive to run nodes, as it is this running of nodes that can begin issuing the money decentrally. This is the first incentive for those who want Bitcoin. They can start participating by getting competitive about trying to mine the Bitcoins, offering their CPU power to the system. It is here that Satoshi lays out the game theoretics as why Bitcoin's rise is unstoppable. There are enough incentives to keep the system running, aka mining Bitcoin, and by running a node to keep the system going and to continuously incentivize more people to join. Here, Satoshi makes reference to gold mining, perhaps the best analogue analogy. He tells us how the incentives for mining Bitcoin are to some extent similar to mining gold. Miners expend excess resources to add excess supply to the system. In the case of Bitcoin, this means the number of CPUs and electricity will be increased exponentially to provide the incentives and required CPU and electrical power to run the system. The system will never stop working because as Satoshi states, the incentives for running the system, even though it runs out of coins at 21 million, will still have transaction fees to add incentive value to the block. The game theoretics of the Bitcoin system, as Satoshi states, also means attackers will not find too many rewards. The CPU power needed to overpower the main network will be far too large to incentivize anybody from even trying. I'm not the first to say this, but Bitcoin works perfectly from a game theoretical point of view. Quote, 7. Reclaiming disk space. Once the latest transaction in a coin is buried under enough blocks, the spent transactions, B, 
before it can be discarded to save disk space. To facilitate this, without breaking the block's hash, transactions are added in a Merkle tree, with only the root included in the block's hash. All blocks can then be compacted by stubbing off branches of the tree. The interior hashes do not need to be stored. A block header with no transactions would be about 80 bytes. If we suppose blocks are generated every 10 minutes, 80 bytes times 6 times 24 times 365 equals 4.2 megabytes a year. With computer systems typically selling with 2 gigs of RAM as of 2008 and more laws predicting current growth of 1.2 gigabytes per year, storage should not be a problem even if the block headers must be kept in memory. Close quotes. The most interesting part of this section to me is Satoshi's reliance on Moore's Law. Moore's Law is one of the oldest, unyet broken laws of computer science. Moore's Law is the observation and projection of a historical trend that the number of transistors of semiconductors will double every two years. Satoshi needs CPU power to run Bitcoin and it is far under the maximum capacity of Moore's law suggests it could be. But with the number of transistors limited by how physically small they can get, some have suggested that without quantum computing coming to consumer markets soon, Moore's law could start failing. Yet, it is lucky that Satoshi undershoots the potential growth of CPU power relative to Moore's law by quite a lot. Bitcoin has a lot of wiggle room. Yet of course, even if Moore's Law is topped out, with no potential for growth, which I doubt anyway, you can always increase the physical space of mining facilities and nodes in order to keep the block size under control. There might be limited space on Earth, but space itself is vast enough that you will be able to hold as many and as big mining facilities as you want. As the network grows, it needs more and more memory usage. Satoshi bases his growth of the Bitcoin network on the prediction that Moore's law will continue, which I think is not unreasonable to suggest. Moore's law was the stock to flow model of its day. It has become such a totem of computing that it has become something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. As of 2021, Moore's law seems to be continuing with new developments coming on tap all the time to increase CPU capacity. And in future, Bitcoin may continue to help Moore's law as CPU power becomes directly monetized by the Bitcoin network. Along with helping an energy revolution, Bitcoin will result in a CPU capacity revolution too. Quote, eight. Simplified Payment Verification It is possible to verify payments without running a full network node. A user only needs to keep a copy of the block headers of the longest proof-of-work chain which he can get by querying network nodes until he's convinced he has the longest chain and obtain the Merkle branch linking the transaction to the block it's timestamped in. He can't check the transaction for himself, but by linking it to a place in the chain, he can see that a network node has accepted it, and blocks added after it further confirm the network has accepted it. As such, the verification is reliable as long as honest nodes control the network but is more vulnerable if the network is overpowered by an attacker. While network nodes can verify transactions for themselves, the simplified method can be fooled by an attacker's fabricated transactions for as long as the attacker can continue to overpower the network. One strategy to protect against this would be to accept alerts from network nodes when they detect an invalid block prompting the user's software to download the full block and alerted transactions to confirm the inconsistency. Businesses that receive frequent payments 
will probably still want to run their own nodes for more independent security and quicker verification. Close quotes. Here, Satoshi lays out more security parameters for his network. He lays out the importance to running your own node to make sure your payments are being connected to the correct network. The chapter itself seems to be an ode towards getting your own node. Commerce sites on the internet are essentially being told by Satoshi that once you get regular payments, you should run your own node. If even businesses and those receiving frequent payments run their own honest nodes, they have obvious incentives to keep the system honest, tautologically keeping the system running. One thing is for sure, Satoshi knew his logic and game theory. Quote, 9. Combining and splitting value. Although it would be possible to handle coins individually, it would be unwieldy to make a separate transaction for every cent in a transfer. To allow value to be split and combined, transactions contain multiple inputs and outputs. Normally, there will be a single input from a larger previous transaction, or multiple inputs combining smaller amounts, and at most, two outputs, one for the payment and one for the returning change, if any, back to the sender. It should be noted that fan out, where a transaction depends on several transactions, and those transactions depend on many more, is not a problem here. There is never the need to extract a complete standalone copy of a transaction's history. Close quotes. This section is another small one. It talks about an issue that you would only realise was an issue if Satoshi hadn't already solved it. He solves it by way of multiple inputs and outputs. Satoshi's system means that transfers can be combined and split multiple times. By putting together value and being able to split them up, the problem of fungibility is therefore solved. That original one Bitcoin mine can be split and combined with others indefinitely. Unlike Humpty Dumpty, those Bitcoins will never ever need putting together again. They can be combined and split up with other Bitcoins at will. And it will never impact the system because that's how the system was designed to work. If Satoshi hadn't solved the fungibility problem, it would be another RAM with which to batter Bitcoin with. And yet Satoshi solved any sort of issue. All it took was for value to be split through multiple inputs and outputs. Quote 10. Privacy. The traditional banking model achieves a level of privacy by limiting access to information to the parties involved and the trusted third party. The necessity to announce all transactions publicly precludes this method. But privacy can still be maintained by breaking the flow of information in another place by keeping public keys anonymous. The public can see that someone is sending an amount to someone else, but without information linking the transaction to anyone. This is similar to the level of information released by stock exchanges, where the time and size of individual trades, the quote-unquote take, is made public, but without telling who the parties were. As an additional firewall, a new key pair should be used for each transaction to keep them from being linked to a common owner. Some linking is unavoidable with multi-input transactions, which necessarily reveal that their inputs were owned by the same owner. The risk is that if the owner of a key is revealed, linking could reveal other transactions that belonged to the same owner. Close quotes. Here, Satoshi takes an attack is the best form of defense sort of approach to the privacy of the Bitcoin blockchain. Instead of information becoming gate-kept like the traditional banking model, relying on privacy coming from the institution itself, Satoshi solves any sort of problem by simply announcing 
all transactions to everybody simultaneously. This causes the problem, as Satoshi says, that anybody can therefore see a transaction and potentially follow a chain of transactions. It's not necessarily the biggest problem, but one Satoshi never solved or fixed. Is there a reason? Was the effort of a multi-layered encryption blockchain too difficult? Possible. Maybe it was too time-consuming. Or did Satoshi believe in an open blockchain? You can well imagine there would be demands for an open blockchain had Satoshi encrypted the transactions, meaning that no transactions could therefore be followed. Of course, Monero, XMR, essentially solved this problem, meaning if you need complete privacy, you can pick that. With rings of encryption around the blockchain, Monero means you can send a transaction to anybody in the world and nobody could trace it. There is, of course, a possibility for adding privacy elements to Bitcoin, meaning you could send your Bitcoin to different addresses through additional layers of on-chain privacy for perhaps only a marginally more expensive transaction fee than currently exists on the open blockchain. But we will have to see what the future holds for that development. It is certainly a possibility should there be demand. Quote 11 Calculations We consider the scenario of an attacker trying to generate an alternative chain faster than the honest chain. Even if this is accomplished, it does not throw the system open to arbitrary changes, such as creating value out of thin air or taking money that never belonged to the attacker. Nodes are not going to accept an invalid transaction as payment, and honest nodes will never accept a block containing them. An attacker can only try to change one of his own transactions to take back money he recently spent. The race between the honest chain and an attacker chain can be characterised as a binomial random walk. The success event is the honest chain being extended by one block, increasing its lead by plus one, and the failure event is the attacker's chain being extended by one block, reducing the gap by minus one. The probability of an attacker catching up from a given deficit is analogous to the gambler's ruin problem. Suppose a gambler with unlimited credit starts at a deficit and plays potentially an infinite number of trials to try to reach break-even. We can calculate the possibility he ever reaches break-even or that an attacker ever catches up with the honest chain as follows. Insert complicated mathematics in Satoshi's white paper here. Given our assumption that P is greater than Q, the possibility drops exponentially, as the number of blocks the attacker has to catch up increases. With the odds against him, if he doesn't make a lucky lunge forward early on, his chances become vanishingly small as he falls further behind. We now consider how long the recipient of a new transaction needs to wait before being sufficiently certain the sender can't change the transaction. We assume the sender is an attacker who wants to make the recipient believe he paid him for a while, then switched it to pay back to himself after some time has passed. The receiver will be alerted when that happens, but the sender hopes it will be too late. The receiver generates a new key pair and gives the public key to the sender shortly before signing. This prevents the sender from preparing a chain of blocks ahead of time by working on it continuously until he is lucky enough to get far enough ahead, then executing the transaction at that moment. Once the transaction is sent, the dishonest sender starts working in secret on a parallel chain containing an alternate version of his transaction. The recipient waits until the transaction has been added to a block and Z blocks have been linked after it. He doesn't know the exact amount of progress the attacker has made, but assuming the honest blocks took the average expected time per block, the attacker's potential progress will be a Poisson distribution with the expected value. 
insert complicated mathematics here, close quotes. Here, Satoshi begins by once again laying out the game theoretics as to why the system is very unlikely to face a successful attack. With analogy to what is called the gambler's ruin problem, and by way of mathematical probability, there is an exponentially diminishing odds of successful attack. This section for me is the most revealing into Satoshi him slash her slash them selves. This chapter does refer to the possibility Satoshi was a team of people, quote-unquote, we can calculate, quote-unquote, given our assumption. This section suggests the team, if it was a team, behind the Bitcoin project felt that this was one of the more important aspects of their programming. The importance Satoshi felt in stating the fact that we can calculate and we assume, and then giving the mathematical proof to explain quite how strong the system appeared to them, despite a lack of 100% certainty, does lead me to believe that this is the key to Bitcoin's success. Even Satoshi wasn't quite sure that this was correct. The solidarity of the system from an outside attack was the key point for Satoshi to explain. The white paper needed to give assurances to other developers of proto-crypto coins that this system appeared to have solved all potential problems. And if Satoshi's calculations worked out, then the system would work flawlessly. Satoshi does not lay it out in too obvious a language, but this new system will be a growing and alive network of nodes, CPUs and blocks. Growing exponentially with increasingly limited supply, the system was designed to be victorious as soon as it was released, adopted and secured from attack. The penultimate chapter concludes with how the Bitcoin blockchain can ensure that transactions are facilitated in good time without the risk of an attacker changing the transaction in mid-flight. Quote, 12. Conclusion. We have proposed a system for electronic transactions without relying on trust. We started with the usual framework of coins made from digital signatures, which provide strong control of ownership, but is incomplete without a way to prevent double spending. To solve this, we proposed a peer-to-peer -peer network using proof-of-work to record a public history of transactions that quickly becomes computationally impractical for an attacker to change if honest nodes control a majority of CPU power. The network is robust in its unstructured simplicity. Nodes work all at once with little coordination. They do not need to be identified since messages are not rooted to any particular place and only need to be delivered on a best effort basis. Nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the proof-of-work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. They vote with their CPU power, expressing their acceptance of valid blocks by working on extending them and rejecting invalid blocks by refusing to work on them. Any needed rules and incentives can be enforced with this consensus mechanism. Close quotes. So the final chapter, and the conclusion, as you might expect from a paper only nine pages long, was short and sweet. It takes Satoshi a paragraph to conclude the paper on the invention of Bitcoin, and they did indeed propose a system for electronic transactions without relying on a trust-based model. They did lay out their attempt to use a peer-to-peer -peer network using proof-of-work and public transactions. The network is simple, and simple enough for it to be robust in this simplicity. They tell us about nodes and how they drop in and out of the system, how they are programmed to follow previous chain events as to what happened on chain. Satoshi then finishes off the paper by saying that, quote, any needed rules and incentives can be enforced with this consensus mechanism." Close quotes. In only a sentence, 
Satoshi lays out the possibility that, with a majority of CPU power, the consensus of even honest nodes can be changed. These honest nodes can introduce new rules and new incentives if need be. And that's it. That is the white paper. Not that long, not that complicated, and arguably perhaps even too brief. There is no flab on this white paper at all. No philosophical introduction like the United States' Constitution. No, we are the people and we hate banks. Just a short explanation, predominantly on the proof of work, network, incentives, and risk from bad actors. There could be far more added than taken away. Nothing about the 21 million supply limit, the devastating effects it will have on the traditional financial sector, the broad discussions on the history of money. No grandiose, no pomposity. As little sign of individualism as possible seems to have been one of the raison d'etres of the Satoshi project. Something fairly ironic as Bitcoin unleashes decades of individualism. Satoshi's white paper was life-changing, life-affirming and revolutionary. It might not seem revolutionary from the white paper, which understates the technology to such an extent it seems almost written to be overlooked. It is a white paper mastering in understatement and feels almost too small and too plain to be of any use at all. Yet all revolutions must start small. Satoshi's white paper is no exception. In retrospect, Satoshi's white paper will be seen as a mastery of computer science. As important to computer science as Einstein's 1905 papers were to physics, or Darwin's on the origin of species was to biology. The white paper too is understandable to all. The paper does not overplay its hand, suggesting the system is anything other than a natural progression of computer science and the developments of cryptography, game theoretics, and the reliability of the internet. The white paper was written for a project to be launched for whatever reason, by whomever, but it could almost be mistaken for a science project. This system is now changing the world, based of course on this white paper. The developments Satoshi introduced were enough to fix all the problems with other digital caches and early attempts at other forms of blockchains. This is why the Satoshi project was released when it was. Digital currencies were going to arrive, and there was the opportunity to make the world's first digital currency the right one, the one that would work and fix all the money problems. So to whomever you are, thank you. That is it, the Satoshi White Paper. And, as you might have guessed, Satoshi's system is still working just fine. So until next time, I'll see you then.